0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Today we have Sam Tatum, author of Evolutionary Ideas, Unlocking Ancient Innovation to Solve Tomorrow's Challenges. Welcome to the New Books Network, Sam. Thanks so much, John. It's great to be with you. Sam, what is your background first and what was the path that led you to this field and eventually this book?
1: Great, great question. So my my background comes in organizational psychology. So I'm a a trained organizational psych. It's one of those um, disciplines, if you go through a psychology path, there tends to be a bit of a fork in the road. As you go to specialize and on one half, it goes sort of clinical where you're looking at all forensic and you're looking at sort of abnormal behavior. Uh, and then there's another path that looks at more normative behavior. So I've always been more interested in sort of normal human interaction that led me down an organizational psychology path. Uh, and that then, funnily enough, took me into into advertising. Uh, so I worked uh, in, a, in a role as a, what's known as a planner. In advertising so it's a it's sort of a, a mislabeled role i think because it doesn't really have anything to do with planning or structure but it's a strategy role uh, so i worked in organized i worked as a, as a planner in, in ogilvy uh, and then about 10 years ago I was asked to bring my psychology more formally into into our into our business, into our agency, uh, and and now I now I, I lead a, a global team of psychologists and behavioural economists in in Ogilvy uh, to help bring this burgeoning field of. of of behavioral science, which is a sort of a broader banner category for behavioral economics, cognitive psychology, social psychology, a lot of different subfields, to to draw upon this lens to help to solve some of the most um, interesting and and problematic um, challenges that we face. And and
0: just so uh, people who might not be familiar understand, what what does Ogilvy uh, do?
1: What is the nature of their business? So so Ogilvy is a a big sort of multinational creative agency. Um, so historically, uh, we're, we're most famous as an advertising firm, um, but we also have a lot of work in, in PR, in experience design, and our part of the business works within the consulting unit. Uh, so we're technically consultants within Ogilvy, um, which is a, sort of a big creative network. Okay.
0: And you use these tools uh, every day in your job that, that we read about in the book, or nearly every day.
1: That's that's right. Uh, this is this might be um, a story of half of the tools that we use, uh, more of the, the the universalities if we can find them within us, and another half of the tools is now looking at individual differences and, and cultural differences. So I think there's there's benefits in looking at, at both sides of the spectrum, and I talk. a a, a bit in the book as to the the direction that I've taken for evolutionary ideas and why I think it's certainly beneficial. But I'd suggest this is sort of one one of, of two lenses that are really important to bring to our our, our our challenges.
0: Okay. And those challenges that you outline in the book, reinforce trust, aid decision-making, trigger action, boost loyalty, and improve experiences. And there's a big element of Innovation in this story and use Google Glass as an example of an innovation that didn't sell, at least not at retail. Do you and your group get involved in the product development phase before that product is ready to be sold?
1: Absolutely. So there are times we've worked with Silicon Valley firms um, launching hardware, um, and asking the exact same questions about reinforcing trust. How can a big social media network um, encourage you to be comfortable having a camera and a microphone in your kitchen? What are the signals and cues that we need to that we need to embed within a, a process to enable that? Uh, and and what I think is is really fortunate. This really stems from working in any creative organization is the the smorgasbord of challenges that you're faced with. Um, and I'm fortunate to be able to work in, as I said, in, in product design or experience design all the way through to working with the likes of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Nigeria and Indonesia to increase the consumption frequency of fortified products. So it's sort of if it has people at its heart, then there tends to be a way in which we can apply this thinking. So it's a it's a wonderful role.
0: I appreciate that. And and I want to talk about, before we go more into the book, this double meaning to your use of the word evolutionary in the title, first in the literal sense, which fascinated me, and we talked about it before we hit record, kind of a reference to evolutionary biology and how these ideas, these behavioral traits happened in nature, just as in the field of biomimicry, where I love the concept that these ideas have survived billions of years of testing. And if they didn't work, they wouldn't have survived. But you also use evolutionary to call out that this is about small changes or adaptations that can also have big impacts. And it's those kind of innovations, incremental in nature, that I think you're focused on. What's the significance, I guess, is the question of calling out the uh, evolutionary nature of small changes versus the revolutionary?
1: Good, Great, great question. And that's really the, um, if there was an enemy, and that's too strong a term, I think. But if there was a, if there was a counter to this book, it's about revolutionary innovation and an assumption that we... Um, that, we, uh, that we all have at many stages, that we need to sort of conjure magic up from our pencil, that we need to come as the knight in shining armour and, 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 and search the blue sky for a solution that no one's ever found before. Um, and we have a real tendency to do this when we're faced with a challenge. Um, we have a tendency to assume we, we need something magnificent and, and novel and, and big, particularly when we're faced with big or novel challenges. And I, I write a bit in at the, at sort of the introduction of the book um, to decouple. Like what is this fascination with revolution, with the revolutionary? Why are we always drawn to what are actually sort of low probability, high risk, high expense avenues to innovate? And why do we why do we fall down this trap? And and, and one one specific lens is is this inclination of it's, it's known as the proportionality bias. We have a tendency to assume that large outcomes require large inputs. Uh, in, the, in the physical world, it kind of makes sense, right? You listen to a loud bang and you assume someone must have hit that hard. <laughs> when you drop a plate, it smashes. Your know, energy sort of distributes in that way. But when it comes to psychology and innovation, it can be very different. So actually, you can have big outcomes with small inputs, you, you can you can change our long-term health by making small adaptive changes. You can increase your financial well-being by by looking at small changes. It doesn't always need to, to to have a sort of a big problem. Doesn't always need a big solution. But actually, what I focus on more so because there's a there's a lot written in in the literature on innovation, certainly on the role of behavioral science in small changes making big differences. Where I sort of focus more so in evolutionary ideas is that sort of novel problems don't necessarily need novel solutions. Just because it might feel new to you doesn't necessarily mean that someone somewhere hasn't already solved it before, just in a place you never thought to look.
0: And and that leads to um, Altshuler's TRIZ, the theory of inventive problem solving, which to me was like the systematic way of thinking creatively about engineering and design and then you get to the three elements of inventive problem solving that I just want to touch on briefly. Yeah. First that, as you said, the, the problem has been solved before it's uh, it may not be unique. The answer's out there somewhere. And that's true in the physical world as well as the psychological, uh, world we're going into. And the second one, I just had a question about this. Uh, there's a consistent pattern of solutions beforehand cushioning. Can you explain that a little
1: bit? Yeah, so beforehand cushioning is an example of an inventive principle in the TRIZ methodology. So just to take us a step up. So the TRIZ methodology was developed by a a Russian engineer um, who uh, actually with himself and colleagues assessed around 200,000 patents. And really identified when I go back to this sort of rosy perspective of revolutionary innovation, they found actually between sort of one and five percent of patents that they observed was actually sort of genuine innovation. The rest of the the, the, the patents were really solving challenges that have already been solved in other in other in other categories, coming up with the same idea. Um, so so what they what they did, I mean that, that's that's sort of a, a realization. And um, but what um, the tris methodology does is it looks at patterns in technical solutions. So just if, if you imagine in in biology, we look at species, different species of animal based on different features. The presence of a spinal cord or gills or different sizes and shapes of beaks helps us to identify different species. In TRIS they do this with technical or engineering solutions. So beforehand cushioning is an example of technical solutions it's sort of a a collective it's like a species of solutions so having a life jacket under your under your seat is beforehand cushioning it's sort of preventing disaster in advance having tires around the road of an f1 track is beforehand cushioning having a having a a, a, um, an airbag in a vehicle is beforehand cushioning so it's it it helps to sort of look at what's the role of this engineering solution and 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 finds this pattern so we can Build a sort of a, a collective nature of them, I suppose.
0: Fascinating, and, and Altshuler brought that all together and systematized it and organized it so you could actually use it as a research database.
1: That's right. So there are are, are 40 different inventive principles. So you've got beforehand cushioning, which I've spoken to. You've got another example of segmentation. You imagine sort of the difference between having curtains or having Venetian blinds, sort of segmented curtains, or modular furniture versus a big couch, that sort of segmentation. Um, So there are 40 different species or patterns of technical solutions that, that they've identified. And what gets... Um what well, it's really interesting, and, and John, stop me if we're going to sort of go here in, in, in conversation, but, but where Altshuler and why I've found TRIZ to be such a valuable model for, for the book um, is that what Altshuler found is, is, is the key to innovation or his, his sort of perspective on innovation is the resolution of a contradiction, so to go to go back again a, a little bit higher, um, so Altshuler was was a as I said a young Russian engineer and um, and actually he after his observation of of looking at patents he actually sent Stalin a letter basically saying that I've witnessed all these challenges with the Russian Navy's approach to innovation I have a better solution here. Uh, and, and that went down about as well as you might expect. And he was sent to <laughs> the labor camp right. but while, while he was in labor camp, he was, a, he was essentially tortured. He was kept, kept awake all, all, all night and prevented from sleeping during the day. And, um, he's, he's sort of faced with this impossible conundrum of how can I stay awake, but, but get my sleep? How can I keep my eyes open? but have them closed fundamentally at the same time. And it sounds like a sort of an impossible contradiction. But what Altshuler did with his prison cellmate was fashion eyeballs out of a cigarette packet and char on these pupils that his cellmate stuck to his closed eyelids. So as the guards walked past, he looked like he was awake, but he was fundamentally sleeping. So they were able to sort of resolve this contradiction, and that was innovation. And that's a really important term when we look at TRIZ, because actually the the, the the winner, I think, of TRIZ is a matrix that they've developed um, that looks at different contradictions that we might see in 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 the physical world or in technology. So how might I make a bulletproof jacket heavy enough to stop a bullet, but light enough to wear? I mean, that sounds like an impossible contradiction without innovation to help us to solve it. How do I make a, a, an umbrella big enough to c- cover the human body, but small enough to put in a handbag? That requires innovation. So to help us to solve those contradictions, we we lean on the inventive principles like beforehand cushioning or like segmentation or like the concept of a classic Russian nested doll that might help us to redesign an umbrella. So it, it helps us to, to say, well, this is the problem that we're faced with, and here's the inventive principle that we should start with.
0: And so right on cue, that was the third element of inventive problem solving, the solving contradictions. And, and that explanation actually helps me understand why it's so important to the story, uh, because you're still making evolutionary changes, but the, when you're solving a contradiction like that, the impacts are actually huge. They can be transformative. And that's, that's right.
1: where it's, so it's, uh, uh, while there might be adaptive um, problem solving that gets us to these solutions... Sort of increments, Once you can see it, then you can put it in an entirely different frame of reference, um, and, and 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 what that helps us to do is is change the category that we're in. So we're not we're no longer in the the umbrella business. <laughs> we're looking at our competitive set of other umbrellas. We're in the how do we make something big yet small business. And if you're in that business, you you can look at NASA. You can look at so many other different categories that have solved this challenge of increasing the, the the volume or the length of something without changing its fundamental size um right. so we can learn faster perfect
0: and I, I could ask you questions for an hour about triz but that's all just a setup for what the book is really about the corollary to the psychological world you know, biomimicry of the mind where there's an opportunity to systematize creative thinking as well based on human behavior as opposed to physical attributes so that's the transition do i have that pretty much right?
1: But that's 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 right. Um, so if we look at the analogy that we form between the engineering or the technical world and and the psychological, um, we also now today through the, the burgeoning field of behavioral science, we have a we have a new categorization of patterns of human behavior. So if we look at the stepping stones that we explore in the book, that there are patterns of biological solutions like the presence of a spinal cord or, or gills or different beaks it helps us define the world of, of biology. We have TRIZ that helps us to see this in engineering solutions with inventive principles. And then if we look at behavioural science, which is where the, the, the book comes to life, the work of government and academia to identify these patterns in human problem solving and put a label on them. I know it sounds, sounds small, labelling these things, um, but having, a, having, a, having identified, just like we've got beforehand cushioning, now we can say, here are a suite of solutions that are social norms, or here are a suite of solutions that trigger our scarcity heuristic, or here are a suite of solutions that, that tap into operational transparency. And once we know what we're looking at, um, then we can more readily apply it. And that's that's what gets exciting, I think.
0: Right. And that our, our, our evolved perceptions heavily influenced by expectations and, and our previous experiences, and the way information is presented. And I don't want to misuse the word contradictions, because it's so important to your story. But I'm wrestling with a couple contradictions of my own in reading the book, and I'll get the first out of the way now. All of these biases and heuristics or shortcuts that I've read about through Kahneman and Thaler and David McRaney. It's fascinating to read that they actually have an evolutionary explanation in your book. But in all those other books and studies about these biases, the consistent theme is they're writing about them because they lead humans to make the wrong decisions, right? Thus are irrational brains in, in behavioral economics, the irrational man or irrational investor. Why did these biases become ingrained through evolution if they're flawed? Did the need to make a quick decision trump the benefit of making a better decision? Why were they, quote unquote, successful as evolutionary traits?
1: That's I mean I think your your hypothesis is right. I mean in many different instances, um, having the best solution <laughs> might take more time than required to have a good enough solution that keeps us alive, uh, and and if you imagine uh, um, a bit like the fact that we experience goosebumps and get the hiccups, I mean, that are sort of, that are, that are biological lags from when we were covered in hair, um, that, that help us sort of, sort of propel the, the, the cold, right. We still get the goosebumps and that's, right. a, that's a biological lag. And we have a psychological lag. So all of these, and, and the language of irrationalities and Dan Ariely wrote a, a fantastic book, uh, predictably irrational. Uh, and that language can sometimes, um, make us feel that, um, we're where, where, we're faulty or we're broken. But I think what's most important is that much of our behavior, interestingly, goes against what could be seen as a, a classical rational economic model. Um, and and when you look at, at, at why this might be the case, so say, for example, having a, 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 a discounted rate in the future. So you can buy it for $10 now, but you can buy it for $8 in two weeks' time. And we have a tendency to say, I'll just buy it now. You're in, or we have sort of temporal discounting that we can have a larger reward in the future, but we'll take a smaller immediate reward. And that, in in a world that we can save, in a world that we have freezers and fridges and credit cards, that we can we can start to think about the future. But in where we evolve these heuristics and shortcuts, it was like if I don't eat this now, (laughs) it's not going to be around tomorrow. (laughs) It's not going to matter. So it's not going to matter. So all of these things that might be seen as deficiencies within a, a modern day context were actually critical to how we got here. So I think we need to we need to look at um, some of these um, insights more more favorably. I mean, it's it's yes they they trip us up and it's important that we understand this so we can build a world or build systems to help us um, to make the right decisions. But they're not because we're broken. It's because we've been highly effective problem solvers for a millennia. And if we understand why they've worked, then we can begin to replicate their successes, or at least again see this pattern um, and and extrapolate that elsewhere. And this is where just to sort of close on this on this thought, because there are two different worlds here a little bit that I've not expressed or, 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 or. tackled head on in the book actually around sort of biases that are sort of fallibilities we spoke before about sort of the confirmation bias offline we were talking about confirmation bias that we have a tendency um, to confirm our own beliefs we were saying john that we sort of listen to a radio station to hear hear what we want to hear rather than challenge Um, and that's a part of human that's a part of human nature um, but it's not so helpful for innovation necessarily it's helpful for us to know that it's a problem to address. I mean, it's a contradiction that we might need to solve, but it doesn't help us as a tool. Um, but what I explore in evolutionary ideas are these patterns of solutions that have evolved that we can see. So what are we actually doing instinctively or through social learning or often by design, but we don't really know why it works, that now we can say, well, this works because it's an example of an X. And, and you can, by, by looking at the world that way, you can connect solutions across categories that we otherwise wouldn't have drawn together.
0: Right, and, and that's a great transition to getting into the book itself. And And if you could talk about, explain the concept of the psychological principles using, I chose social proof as yep. maybe something because I just think it, it's one that's be readily accessible to, to most listeners.
1: Yeah. So, if you think of the, the, the going through the stepping stones, if we think of sort of TRIZ's inventive principles, like beforehand cushioning. So, if you if you want to prevent disaster in the future, let's think about predicting that in advance and build for it. We we have sort of psychological inventive principles, or what I what I just refer to as psychological principles, and social norming is 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 um, is. is is one of those and uh, we can look at social norming which is our tendency to follow the crowd again if we look evolutionary it sort of makes sense for us to do what other alive people are doing (laughs) like if we continue to copy what living people do then we're probably more likely to continue living ourselves Um, and and so, so there is a bias there's a heuristic there this shortcut that we tend to do that but we can also then see how Commerce and business and design have tapped into this element of our psychology to persuade and inform behavior. So if you look at restaurants sort of always pack their restaurants from the front windows back. You mean so you're walking past on the road? They look really busy. That's a that's a, a lovely social norming solution that they've they've tried to make a restaurant look busy by making all their customers most 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 evident. And in the book, I explore so for 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 social social norming, um, a couple of different ways in on this. So one is adding things to our environment. Right? So how do how might we how might we see things being added into a a behavioral context that shows us that someone has been there before safely um, and we can explore this back to Native American Indian tribes that used to bend over saplings to form marker trees so the trees would would grow as arrows and street signs essentially to say this is where a this is where a safe crossing is right, um, the like, safe so way home yeah. safe way home so so even like, we can start to put things in the environment to show that this is a trusted or safe response this is this is this is normed all the way through to modern day social norming of of a like or a testimonial um and we can start to say okay so this is so so a marquetry isn't so far away from a five-star review if you know that both of them are right. looking at social proof um so that's sort of putting things into the behavioral context We can also explore um, social proof from taking things away to show that, well, someone's been here safely before, and that's if you look at an empty cookie jar, you have a sense that they must be good cookies. (laughs) So so sometimes there are sort of patterns of solutions that is the absence of something that you're expecting to see that shows that someone has been there before. So a rip-tag flyer for guitar lessons is a lovely example. If you see those sort of often on telegraph poles, and the best strategy to do is if you're ever putting one up, rip off half of them because right. <laughs> it makes it look like five other people have been interested before you. And it's not it's it's not because you've put something up there. It's because you took it away. Interesting. So having this concept of social proof or social norm helps us to see all these disparate evolved solutions around us and, and connect the dots.
0: And social proof's a good launch point to talk about the contradictions again the first contradiction is reinforcing trust without altering the truth. One psychological principle associated with resolving this contradiction is signaling, which I chose to ask about not just because I think it's accessible, but because I can kind of see the roots in natural selection um, strategies to help detect dishonest signals. How might signaling play out in the real world or be used in your work?
1: Yeah, so so signaling is a fascinating um, area, and if we if we if we start in biological signaling um uh, signaling is important when there's what academia would call it an asymmetry in information so some someone knows more than the other party so right. how can we how can we signal that and we see this in nature for example in the poison arrow frog i mean it's bright blazing sort of disregard for its safety being bright yellow so it of says i'm so toxic i can afford to be bloody obvious <laughs> right <laughs> you know really? not afraid I'm not afraid. Um, what's what's known as the stot of a of a springbok. I mean, the, if you ever see those sort of gazelles jumping on four feet, it's like a yes. signal that I'm I'm so young and fit and fast. Don't even bother chasing me. But what's really important in signalling is that it's the cost of the signal that is related to its its honesty. So if a, if if a poison arrow frog was actually delicious. It would just be walking around with it with basically and eat me because of the cost the cost to the frog is that it's seen more evidently um so if it was a if it was a dishonest signal or it's actually a really tasty frog then it's it's doing itself an, in, an injustice one one bird eats a tasty frog and they say you better have the yellow ones they're delicious or a, or an old springbok um that's tired and knackered and it's got to pretend in front of the lions that don't worry I'm really young and fit but it exhausts itself uh, and then is picked off so so the cost of the action is really important to the to the degree of the honesty Um, so 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 that's kind of the most important thing of signaling Uh, and we can start to see this in our everyday work so um, if we look at there's an example I write in, in the in the book with octopus energy uh, a, a UK energy supplier. Uh, and just before Christmas last year, I think, they wrote out to p- potential customers and said, don't don't switch to Octopus. You I mean, our research shows that it's far better for you to stay with your existing provider right now uh, and we'll come back when it's a better time to switch. And that was a cost to Octopus. You I mean, they could have said switch now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> could have, but actually the cost to Octopus reinforces the fact that they don't have a short-term Agenda here. They have a long-term agenda. You don't buy a sort of spend two months' salary on a, on a on an engagement ring to to up and leave the next day. And there's an investment in there that, that shows that you're you'll continue with that relationship. Um, so that's that's a little bit about about signalling. If that feels sort of linear enough, that, that signalling can help us to reduce. It's known as asymmetry in information. When someone knows a lot and someone knows nothing, but a signal is only valuable if it costs you something. It's like a, it's like a purpose is only um, is only valuable if 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 you, if you sort of if you're invested within it, um, and if you can show the sacrifice or the cost within the signal, um, we can help to reinforce um, the perceptions of trust that come from it.
0: And, and is this relate to this concept of reputational
1: cost that you you bring up? How does that figure? So, so reputational is another element of the the, the cost to the signaler. So again, okay. if, if um, and and when you look at most powerful signals, they're they're not one to one; they're one to many. I mean, the 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 coloration of the poison arrow frog is like everyone can can see that. So um, the the cost to reputation is essentially if 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 there was a risk that someone would say. That's, that's bullshit, frog. I know you're delicious. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> then your cover's blown. Your cover's blown. Right. There's a risk of just one one bird that tried it one time said, no, no, you're delicious. And then then it's, you, you risk it. So, so what we actually can see um, is that um, oftentimes digital brands um, with big digital footprints like Google or Facebook or Uber tend to, mer- to, to merge into um, traditional media. When looking to communicate important things like safety or trust, because it shows if I've got if, if Uber does an ad that makes this claim and it's on the Super Bowl, right? We know millions of people are seeing this. So if someone doesn't agree with this, or if someone says well, that's not the same as my experience, and that's an increased reputational cost, they'll say this is this is bogus, this is wrong. Whereas if it's one to one, if Uber's just telling me this on a on a personalised banner. Um, then it's very hard for me to, unless I've had that experience myself. There's no, there's 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 no, um, what would be a good term? There's there's no community effect to to call that's a mistruth. Um, right. So 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 the looking at reputational cost as a part of the signal is important.
0: And, and that notion that a more public broadcast could actually be better than the signal from a targeted ad to just one viewer, I found. Fascinating. I remember, you know, 25 years ago, a book came out, one-to-one marketing. You know, that's what it was all about. Was hey, John, I designed this uh, just for you. But, um,
1: you know, how do I know you're telling the truth to just me? You know, um, and that's right. And I think there's a time and a place for, for for that. But when we're looking specifically around trustworthiness, I mean, it's no surprise that most scams occur via email. I mean, you don't see many. Many right. many scams that that are on 30 seconds, exactly on a billboard because I was like, don't call that guy. You are in because it's public enough to have an increased reputational cost. So it's, there's a couple of different ways of, of thinking about signaling and in sort of the cost to utility. So it's been it's it's I've I've made this decision at great expense. You in, um, and so so I'm I'm good for it. You in because if it goes wrong, then I'm I'm out. Um, right. all the way through to reputational costs. that actually, if I was lying to you, I'd be found out pretty quickly um, right. because this message is public enough. You know, and the, the, the start of the spring book is for everyone to see, not right. just the private dance for the lion. <laughs>
0: right. And within this first contradiction, uh, you speak to, again, signaling and, and social proof plus operational transparency and labor illusion, which leads me to another question, just as I was reading. In your work, do you often combine principles in your recommendations to clients or does that tend to muddy the message social proof shows up here and again in the section on defaults and I just wondered how many how often you can use multiple principles to solve problems
1: yeah I think it's a really really good question and um, and what's what's important with all of all of this stuff is it's it's not it's not black and white I mean so it's so there are areas of gray and there are things that all that's a that can be operational transparency, but if you look at it another way, you could see it as this. And uh, in in evolutionary theory, um, some of the best solutions have multiple roles. <laughs> so so right. Um, the, the 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 leftover crumbs of the cookie jar not only says that they must be good cookies, it triggers the scarcity driver. So well, next time they fill the jar, I better get in quick. So it kind of scarcity. does. does yep does two roles so so the first thing to note is it's not as clean as that um, but to answer the question i think to take us a step back then is to how we generate solutions from this theory so in in the book i write a lot about and we've spoken about triz about sort of systematic innovation and i write a lot about systematic creativity and how we how we sort of sort of extract the the, the sword from the stone with this stuff because the theory is helpful and always interesting um but what do we do with it um, right. and and for me um i'm a big believer in the power of, of questions so i mentioned at the very beginning um that i i had a background in advertising strategy and in advertising strategy oftentimes you leave a creative team with like one line you you could be working for weeks on a brief and it distills itself down into one line that the creative um team are, are going to be thinking about for the next month so yes. it's this 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 point of provocation So don't ask someone to say out prick them with a pin. What's the thing that's going to help them to what's the thing that's going to help to take them to somewhere that they wouldn't otherwise? And for me, with a lot of this work, it's about questions. So if we go back to social norming and we look at um, I I spoke to two different sides of the coin and social norm, things that can be left in a context and things that can be taken away. So if we were to look at that as a question, we might ask, uh, what can we put in this context to show that someone has been there safely before? Or how might we enable user interaction to show that it's a trusted or safe experience? Or how might we make it open source to allow people to leave a comment or, or, or share their view? So those are three sort of questions that stem from that side of social norm. If we were to look at um, what might be taken away, we might say how might we remove something from the context to show that someone's been there safely before? What are people expecting to see but isn't there that might show that this is already a, a familiar route for, for others? And in the book I for each section I write a series of innovation questions and that helps us to basically generate ideas. And then you have ideas. <laughs> and then you have, well, we could do this or we could do that. And sometimes they merge together to say, well, actually this single idea does a bit of social norming, but it's it's the it it also taps into our scarcity. It sort of almost is less important at that end. It's more about making sure that we've exhausted all of our avenues in ideating to make sure that nothing's left off the table. Um, if that makes sense, John.
0: It, it, it does. And I'll just I'll just say that those three questions you put at the end of every chapter coming from someone that was generally trying to learn something that was a little new, a little bit of a stretch for me, were, we're brilliant. They really, right. they really helped. Um, right. I got a lot out of that. Um, well,
1: I found, I found just on that. I mean, we're, as I said at the beginning, I work in a um, what I think is a wonderful creative network, and and I found over the years um, that it doesn't pay to turn up in a room or a workshop and just tell people how smart you are with theory. You I mean, if you can convert that theory into a into a provocation or a question that anyone can answer, then you democratize this stuff. People don't need to know, really, that that's operational transparency. They just need to be able to answer the question, how might we help people to see the working that's occurring behind the scenes? Right, if, you can, if you can answer that question with an idea, then you'll naturally tap into operational transparency. So you can sort of cut out the middleman a little bit with these questions.
0: Yeah, I, I've, I've not been a teacher in a long time, but I do coach youth sports and I call it uh, understanding the why. You don't don't yeah. tell the player just to go from here to here. Explain to them why, and then they'll actually remember it, and yes. um, and start doing it on their own. Yeah. Um, the next contradiction is aiding decisions without limiting choice. And I'm particularly struck by the first story introducing the paradox of choice involving retirement savings plans. Part of my work is helping people make choices in their retirement plan, and the plans I've seen are appalling to me. Plenty of bad options, too few good options, too many overall, and no way for a non-financial person to figure out which is which, so they punt. Can you just talk a little bit about the paradox of choice, and then I have a follow-up.
1: No, of course. we, We sort of tend to assume that more is more. No one, no one wants to – you don't take the, the family out for ice cream and, and look at the three options. You, you want to have sort of a smorgasbord. 57 flavors, right? That's, exactly. a, that's a brand, and, yeah. yeah. And and Because we, we feel if we've got more choices, then we're more likely to find the desired outcome. We're more likely to find something that fits. But what's interesting is that research tells us actually the more choices that we have is the more likely we are to – regret a decision, to delay a decision, to be less comfortable with the choice that we've made after the fact. Um, and uh, and, and so, so the paradox of choice is, is, is really that actually some more isn't necessarily more um, and having having fewer better options or designing the choice architecture in a way to help limit choice can be more valuable than just offering up people more. So when we look at the retirement savings study, and I can't remember the statistics off off my head, but I think it was for every, for every incremental... ...option um, choices, yeah. And, yeah, they sort of lost a, lost a, had a 2% reduction in people that actually went on to to, to choose one. <laughs> so, right. so there was a direct correlation between, well, the more options, the less people choose. Um, so our job then becomes um, making sure that... Um, the choices are available. People have this flexibility, but we're able to present them in a way um, that's useful. Um, We can architect the choice. We can make it helpful for people to navigate the solution that's best for them. And that's where the the sort of the contradiction comes in. How do we aid decision-making without limiting choice? So there are ways in which we can think think around that.
0: And I'm going to get back to choice architecture in a second, but my follow-up on this uh, topic uh, comes out of the processed food world where, sadly, uh, I think it was Michael Pollan maybe that introduced the world to this consultant in upstate New York that came up with the Bliss Index through a large number of focus groups. Is the optimal amount of sugar, salt, and fat you can put in any product to maximize consumption. Is there a way to get an optimal number of choices uh, that we, you know, uh, or I'm familiar with good, better, best. I'm, I'm sure there's science behind that. Um, but is there an optimal number of choices? Does it change with every product or service? And is there a way to know when you've got it right?
1: I, I, uh, good, good question. I'd I'd suspect that um, I, I don't have the answer, the absolute answer, but I think it, I think there would be um, different numbers for, for different categories. Um, if you're looking at um, if you're looking at a mobile phone plan, you're in. You, you probably don't want fifteen options, but if you go into a restaurant, you probably also don't want three. Right. Um, so, so, so I think it probably likely de- depends on the the category and expectations. But um, I think what's most important is we arm people with a reference to help them, um, to help them make a decision, so that, that feels like there's um, clear differences between the choices that we're making. And 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 so oft- oftentimes the the good, better, best model works. Um, and there are ways in which you can then look to inform decision making if you'd like. And this is where, I mean mobile phone companies are expert at this. And I write a little bit about this in, in talking about decoys where you make the sort of the, where you decide which is the, which, which might be the, the optimal solution for a, a, a patient or what might be the most profitable, profitable solution for a company and how can we drive people to, towards that. Um, uh, and, and a decoy is essentially having a choice that's of equal cost, but lesser of value. Um, so, if, for example, uh, if, if we're looking at mobile phones and you've got one that's got good battery and a, and a bad camera, I mean, and you've got one that's got a great camera but a bad battery, that's kind of a hard decision to make. right? But if you have another one with a, with a, with a sort of a, a, a good camera but an even worse battery, I mean, that becomes the decoy for the one that's got a good camera and a, and a sort of not great battery but better than the bad one. So you can throw throw sort of a a sacrificial decoy to help people see what's good.
0: Yeah, you've got these overlapping kind of marginal cost-benefit curves and somewhere uh, there's a spot that makes the most sense.
1: It's tricky. And for for our listeners, so Dan Ariely that we spoke about before um, wrote, and I think it's impredictably irrational around the economist subscriptions um, and looking at um, essentially people buying – a newspaper or a physical description. Um, um, oh yeah.
0: Versus the online version.
1: the online. Right. Uh, and then they, they basically, um, if you have, if you, I forget, I, I can't quote the percentages, but having, if you have just got print only, then I think about 80% of people bought or if you've got, digital only for more money than a a fewer number but if you have digital plus print for the same price then you totally change the market you're in 100 percent And in the the book i write and the same thing is true of nature so in one study you look at gray jays or a tiny it's a tiny bird and you have um two sultanas 20 centimeters away from you and then three sultanas 50 Centimeters away from you, uh, and then you find that the majority of the time they go for the the, the quicker the, the the quicker um the quicker two two sultanas, but if you add three sultanas even further away, that becomes the decoy. So the birds shift now to the middle option more so than the first because there's a worse. There's the same number of sultanas even further away than the second option. So we see this in in nature just as we see it in navigating mobile phone markets. And, And I go a bit deeper on asymmetric decoys now just because it's an example of... An evolved solution that helps us to make quick decisions. And I we said, "Well, I don't know what's the perfect decision, but this is better than that option, <laughs> so so I'll do that." Right. And when we when we when we spoke before about a psychological lag and and how these irrationalities sort of evolved, it's because actually sometimes making a quicker decision is better than a perfect decision, uh, and these things help us to, to to do that more often than not.
0: Right. And and, and I'll I'll cut this off if it, it feels redundant now, but it was about this topic of choice architecture um and another question of evolution with thaler sunstein you write early on that our brain's not a rational calculator as every thaler fan and student of behavioral economics knows survival of the species depends on responding quickly correctly enough most of the time those are my notes i don't know if that's an exact quote but i think the sentence speaks to this question about choice architecture which definitely, I think, is designed to make people make better decisions, buy more broccoli than brownies, um, save for retirement, don't save for retirement, uh, versus some of the tools in the book, which, again, are helping them make quicker decisions. Is there any tension there you can explain? Is it related to making better decisions easier? Am I making up a distinction without a difference? Um,
1: I've not considered the difference, um, because if we look at... Um, things like save more tomorrow—that was sort of a defaulted, a defaulted option. So it sort of made right. the decision almost automatic. Um, I think. Uh, I think what's most important is that we is we don't assume the optimal decision. <laughs> that right. um, That we're not weighing up all the costs and benefits and pros and cons and then acting. We're we're trying to navigate what's what's good enough most of the time. Um, and, and in the book, when we explore decision making, we do explore sort of defaults and defaulted options that just help decision ease um, all the yep. way through to looking at um, having concrete terms and visuals behind things just to sort of remove any degree of abstraction to help us decide more quickly. Um, so I don't I've not considered the difference between sort of easier and faster. I suppose if it's easier, then it becomes implicitly a, a, a faster decision to make. Um what we're trying to do is remove the expectation of 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 optimization um, and remove the cognitive load um, from individuals to help um, to inform choices in a way that we know the brain is more likely to respond to because of, the way we've been built over, over time.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. and you are dealing in the real world. That's the the Achilles' heel of all of modern financial theory, the academic piece that we are what Taylor calls the econ, the perfect yeah. economic who's processing thousands of data points and building spreadsheets to make a simple decision like I am going to, you know, sell this stock, and it's just it's just not reality as as we're learning.
1: And, and sometimes these heuristics are, can be more beneficial than spending the time to to, to run long calculations <laughs> so it's actually um, it's just it's these uh, it's these times like hyperbolic discounting or temporal discounting that we that we forego a larger reward in the future for a smaller short-term gain these are things that that economists sort of hate <laughs> but if you understand right. why that made sense actually it's it's kind of makes sense in our in our in our history it just makes less sense now that we have the choice um so if we can if we can most of the time these these patterns of responses um these biases are really helpful for us we don't understand we don't even realize that it's happening to help us survive in in, in a in a very dangerous complex world um, but by looking at um, by, by studies or looking at sp- specific examples of modern society that trip us up, and I think it's been helpful. It's helped us to see this: there's there's something going here that we don't expect. But in in, in the book and evolutionary ideas, I don't I don't go too deeply onto this sort of fallibility. It's like, okay, we've understood that we've evolved a particular way. Let's best understand these patterns so we can we can help ourselves to innovate more effectively.
0: Yeah, and as humans, you do go into the book about why the psychological principle of defaults is so important because our brain is just trying to deal with stimuli and data and inputs that it's almost inconceivable, and so yeah. there's a natural tendency to oh, thank you for making my life easier. That's a that's a good thing. I appreciate yes. it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So,
1: in in um, and many of, many of your listeners would have come across the 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 the, the, the framing of System One and System Two. Um, that's an important um, foundation of a lot of behavioral science, popularized by Daniel Kahneman. Um, It's a sort of a simplification, but it's helpful if we think of system one being our sort of evolutionary old brain and system two being our sort of more evolutionary recent brain. But our system two is really expensive. (laughs) This sort of more recent mushrooming of our brain, our frontal cortex, the part of our brain that can think about thinking. I mean, it costs a lot of glucose, um, so more often than not, we sort of tend to revert to our system one and our system one is inherently la- lazy and it will just go with the flow of, of preset options. So, so when we start to think about, okay, so, so why are defaults so valuable? It's just because we don't have the processing power or the, or our brains are, it would be impossible for us to make these decisions all the time, um, in that way. So let's build a path that's, that's built for our system one rather than our system two.
0: Got it. Um, the book goes through imagery and chunking, and then we get to contradiction three, triggering action without forcing a response. And one psychological principle in particular, salient feedback. Again, because once I read about it, I could imagine some benefit in natural selection. But I'll let you explain the importance and power of, of feedback loops.
1: So, so feedback's really valuable for learning. I mean, so we get a there's there's... Uh... Without having a sense of feedback, we never know if we're on path or not. And that can be in language, that can be in social learning. But if we look at speeding down a freeway, for example, or a highway, we sometimes find that we have less feedback. (laughs) If you imagine the difference between driving through a a sort of a tight alley in, in the city versus a freeway, where you've got in the tight alley, you've got People whizzing past you and houses and telegraph poles and all the good stuff, and in the freeway you've got open road. It's very hard for us to know whether we've sped up or or we're going over the speed limit. So, so we don't have that salient feedback that helps us to know to slow down. Um, so, so salient feedback is really valuable in, in many different functions, um, and and as a result, we've found in in many brands or many companies where feedback is missing that we need to bake it in there. Um, and that can be a parent who's looking to change a diaper and doesn't know whether it's wet or not. <laughs> so, so
0: changes so, colors.
1: So let's create a strip that changes color to provide a salient feedback that helps us to know that just as having a, having a sort of a radar um, speedometer helps us to know if we're driving over the speed limit, um, yep. That helps us to know if we need to change a nappy. Um, so there are these sort of lovely examples of, of, of feedback that help us to, to trigger us into action.
0: Those those uh, speed signs do work on me, I can tell you. Yeah. I have them all over our, our little mountain town. Contradiction four is is boosting loyalty without increasing rewards. And I was shocked to learn that loyalty programs aren't that effective. They have a weak return on investment. How is that? They they still seem so pervasive. Are there are there ways to make them work that are out there?
1: Well still so and and when we look at and, and in the in the book I reference some of the research from the Ehrenbag Institute in South Australia and Byron Sharp and and one of the hypotheses behind its ineffectiveness is they tend to work with existing customers. So actually uh. you're actually you're 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 not attracting new buyers and moving people into into loyalty. You're just um converting those who are buying your product anyway to buy it anyway right so so that's and so um i think if you look at um frequency of purchase and consumption even brands like coca-cola i think um have such a long tail of consumers you're into the like i think about four percent of 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 coca-cola's drinkers account for 25 percent of the volume the other 96 percent are on this sort of really long this really long tail so 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 essentially one argument school of thought is that loyalty is 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 very extremely difficult uh, and it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a, of a of a mythical beast for us to chase the other is if we can think about programs in a slightly different way um rather than just incentives um we can we can look at at making the increase in loyalty that we desire without it costing the house, without having to have a, um, increase the, 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 dollar back on every purchase or say, okay, we used to give a free coffee out for every 10. Now let's give it out for every five. There are ways in which we can bridge that gap, um, using psychological levers, not necessarily commercial ones.
0: Okay. Um, I necessarily skipped over so many of the psychological principles, and I, I, I cherry-picked the ones that uh, I was intrigued by, and also thought giving my outsider's perspective what might relate to uh, non-professional listeners. But are, are there any other principles, or that you would uh, like to tease for listeners uh, before we wind down? Pick, no, pick think, one or two, whatever you want to talk about.
1: I think the last, what was uh, what I really enjoyed, I think researching for the book. Is is actually the last contradiction, which is about um, improving experiences without changing their duration. Um, and to understand about experience, it's really important that we understand about um, about time, um, and and the difference between so the time that passes on a clock and the time that we experience passing, and they're two different things. That was fascinating, by the way. Please, yeah. And I, it was for it was for me too. It wasn't an area of, of strength, but it was a is really important area to explore in, um, in covering what I wanted to cover for the book. Um, but when we look at all the classic things like time slows down when you're when you feel like you're about to crash your car, you and all these anecdotal feedbacks are suddenly proven in the experimental paradigms that under stress, under situations of novelty. I mean, we really focus all of our attentional resources on the on the moment. And we, we take many, many more photos, for lack of a better term. We, we just capture every, every inch of that moment so that time naturally feels longer. When we're in safe or familiar environments, our brain can afford to switch off again a little bit. We don't have to be thinking there's a saber-toothed tiger around the corner every time we put the bins out. And so by understanding at a at a physiological level, I suppose, what stretches or compresses time, then you can start to look at solutions that have evolved to improve our experience of weights uh, or, um, or, or focus our, uh, our attention on positives. We can start to see actually why they make a lot of sense. So one... I'll, I'll speak to one sort of specific concept within within that around occupied time. Um, it's a, the, the old sort of kitchen statement of sort of a watch pot never boils, is a really lovely one. And again, we, we we sort of tend to find that that a lot of this theory exists intuitively. We just haven't had the science behind it. Right. Uh, and and what's interesting um, when we're unoccupied, we're we're bored, and if you think like. You're bored. The, uh, certainly, for me, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I would never have thought I'm really stressed. you know I mean? but actually, when we're bored, we're stressed. You know, when we're in a high arousal state, and and we're stressed, and it, it it makes the theory has argues that it's a it's a it's a benefit for us to feel stressed when we're bored. It's an adaptive feature because it encourages us to do something else. If we're sitting there twiddling our thumbs, we're not out there looking to find our reproductive partner we're not out there searching for cognitive or social stimulus that will help us in the future so so it's we we, we're stressed to do something else but but when we're stressed again our attentional resources are focused and time feels longer so when you're bored it's like it's not just you're, you're doing nothing actually because you're stressed time feels longer than it should um, so, so once you understand that, it makes sense to know. Well, just by occupying people, and it can just be like watching YouTube and and tricking your brain into the fact that you're not bored, or, or if we look at Disneyland, extending the the queue to make it feel like it's part of the ride. I mean, so you don't feel like it's a wait at all. These are really genius ways of converting unoccupied time. Into occupied time, the wonderful um, the wonderful intro to to that chapter. I say the wonderful intro. That the 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 anecdote that I appreciate um, it, right. that I wrote about um, uh, is, is from a Times article I think some time ago. It was about Houston Airport and Houston Airport were experiencing um, lots of complaints for their arriving passengers. Um, and the executive team got together, and 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 what they did is they, they found people were spending sort of eighty percent of their time just standing at the luggage carousel. So they they improved the efficiency of the baggage handlers. They I think they knocked about eight minutes off the off the total waiting time, but the complaints continued. Um, so 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 the solution that actually worked, rather than sort of. Um, Sanding down minute by minute based on sort of small incremental efficiencies. What they did was just ensure that the, the the cargo bridge from the plane was at the opposite side of the airport to the carousel. So they made their customers or their their, their passengers walk seven times further. But because you're walking, well, you're occupied, you're doing something. Right. So by actually getting people to walk further, they reduce complaints because it converted unoccupied time into occupied time. And if you think of that back into sort of the evolutionary underpinnings of this we're probably more likely to bump into the love of our life walking to the carousel than, we, than maybe we are standing blankly at it and it's right. a lovely sort of it's a lovely way of thinking it, it can be so simple to think about the psychological solution to this rather than an engineering solution rather than spending more money getting more baggage handlers rather than sort of increasing the the horsepower of the engines that get the luggage from the airport to the from the plane to the, the carousel So just get people to walk further. And that's what I love about this stuff is it, it gives you permission to think slightly differently. Um, it gives you permission to to borrow from Houston, to borrow from Disney, to, to, to borrow from a McDonald's ATM sort of receipt when you're experiencing a meal. All these different worlds can come together once you know what you're looking for. and And the codification of behavioral science has given us that. And by asking better questions of our problems, we're able to we're able to to redistribute their value ourselves.
0: Yeah, th- this topic, the, the the application that jumps out right away is what you talked about—just dealing with with queues, whether it's the airport or the the coffee shop—and it leads to uh, your next book. I see, Sam, which is <laughs> applying this not just to engineering solutions or marketing solutions, but uh, business processes. Right, the way things are structured.
1: That's uh, and, for I, and I think once we if we can identify a contradiction. Um, that we need to solve. And that's, if, if we look at um, the, the analogy of TRIZ, I think they identified about 1,500 different parameters and distilled those down into 39 parameters. I mean, we explored five different areas in, in evolutionary ideas, but there are many more nuanced ways in which we can think about this. Uh, and and build a process um, for, for for not a not a perfect science, but it's behavioral science. It's not perfect science, um, but but by thinking about problem solving in a more structured, systematic way, drawing upon evolved psychological solutions rather than firstly assuming that we can conjure up magic from a blank page <laughs> and starting from scratch. That actually, there's an assumption that it exists somewhere, and we can redeploy it, um, and it can be. More efficient, more effective than than costly, rational engineering or technical solutions, and that's really what we're what we're seeking here.
0: What you're after, you know, your your story of uh, the the pain of boredom, there may be a multiplier effect. I, I just listened to an interview with Dan Gilbert at Harvard, where he talked about studies that showed that humans today just cannot be alone with their own thoughts. Yeah, like they just they, that's why the you said that the YouTube or social media, what does that do? But gives you A distraction it shrinks time it fills time and it prevents you from having to be you know stuck in your own head which we just have lost the ability to do i think
1: totally be alone again if we go back to what is the what is the survival benefit of 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 sitting there twiddling our thumbs, virtually nothing. If we can trick our brain to think that we're 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 at a rock concert, you're in, or doing something or with our time, yeah, or, or we've turned into surgeons and we're currently on the set of House, you're in, then we can, we're doing something beneficial. We're learning something. Um, then 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 we're half the way there. Um, yeah. But least, I think I, I certainly find it helpful to understand why this might be the case. Why does why does time shrink and and or oh, compress and stretch? And then what are the times that we want to stretch it? 'Cause that's the other thing. We often talk about shrinking time. That's when we're talking about weights, but we're looking at extending time when it's really positive moments. Um so right. the last the last sort of psychological principle that I explore in, in the book is about the peak end effect and how we tend to remember experiences based on their peak moment and and how they end. You can start to think about designing really valuable, distinctive peak moments. In a, in, a, in a hotel stay or peak moments in a customer service that's, that, that is designed to make it feel really long, to stretch that time. So it's sort of just like an accordion. <laughs> we, can, we can expand it and contract it based on on what we're seeking to achieve, and, and this gets us some of the way to doing that.
0: That's fascinating. Sam, good books entertain, better books make you do some extra research on the side, which I've already started doing. I have two Dan Ariely books on my nightstand for six months, and right. I'm going to start reading them today. Um, but the best books change the way you think and act. And, and I think this book hits the trifecta. And I can't thank you enough for your time today.
1: Oh, I really appreciate the time to speak. And, and thanks so much for, for, for reading. And I do hope your, uh, your audience enjoys this discussion and, and the book.
0: I have no doubt they will. Thank you, Sam.
1: Thanks.